This podcast is made possible by the generous support of Lilly Oncology. Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the award-winning podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Dr. Michael Method is an oncologist and also Senior Medical Advisor and Global Lead for Adjuvant Breast Cancer Treatment Research at Lilly Oncology. There were several studies on breast cancer presented at the European Society for Medical Oncology Virtual Congress 2020. Dr. Method joins us to give a summary of some of the most important research. Dr. Method, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and happy to be here. Great. So, ESMO 2020 was virtual this year because of the pandemic, but there was still quite a bit of breast cancer research presented. So could you talk a little bit about the research that really stood out for you and then tell us what you think that research means for patients? Absolutely. And and again, thank you for the opportunity to be here today talking with you. I think the first thing that really uh, popped out in the breast cancer space um, really has to be the monarchy trial uh, and I know perhaps many have heard already about the, the details of the trial, but this trial really has the opportunity to change the face of the treatment and management of patients with um, early breast cancer. The trial was actually designed specifically for the hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, node positive breast cancer patient population that had higher risks of recurrence. And in that patient population, we actually were able to demonstrate a 25.3% improvement in this concept we call invasive disease-free survival, basically um, the cancer coming back. Uh, And that really was an absolute benefit of 3.5% at the two-year mark when this analysis was done. And and this reached a very significant p-value, suggesting that this trial was a definitive improvement in the treatment and management of, of patients in this population. Particularly important in that trial was really the risk of distant recurrence prevention um, by a large 28.3%. And again, we have to be um, uh, clearly understand that the benefit was achieved within that two-year period of time of treatment, uh, which is the first time in the last 15 to almost 20 years where there's been that significant of an improvement in the treatment and management of this patient population. Fortunately, the safety uh, and tolerability of this trial met all of the criteria and safety criteria um, that was anticipated, and there are really no new findings with regards to safety, side effects, toxicities, or adverse events. Moving on to um, a, a less favorable trial, but one that was quite important and one that involved a number of patients throughout was the PALACE trial. The PALACE trial actually looked at a similar population to the Monarchy trial, And in that trial, this, um, again, randomized phase three open-labeled trial actually looked at all stage two, three early breast cancer, which was a less high-risk group than the Monarchy trial looked at. And this trial, um, just prior to the ASCO meeting, declared a futility analysis, basically saying that the trial was not efficacious and did not improve the outcome of patients. Why this is so important is because the two trials put side by side really identifies and emphasizes 
the importance around the identification of those patients at the highest risk for recurrence who need more therapy. Again, they need their therapy escalated as opposed to by the current standard, uh, which is the combination of surgery, radiation, and or chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy. The use of the molecules that were studied in this group are what we call the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And this class of drugs, which is now commonly used in the metastatic breast cancer setting, has now been moved to the early breast cancer setting with abemocyclib or Verzenio now demonstrating efficacy in that highest risk patient population for recurrence. Just to say it again, this is the first time in the last 15 years that an improvement in that patient population has been identified um, and the need uh, and identification of those patients for which escalation of therapy is necessary has occurred. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to ask, just so we're clear, I know the Monarch E trial was looking at using Verzenio in addition to hormonal therapy. And I'm sorry, the Palace trial, was that looking at a different CDK4-6 inhibitor? It was. Okay. That trial was looking at Ibrantz or Pavlocyclib, and that's one of the three uh, CDK4-6s that are approved and have shown benefit in the metastatic setting. Many reasons why that trial may have failed. Um, a couple include the choice of a less high-risk population, mm-hmm. so those that do just as well on endocrine therapy alone. And the second is likely the tolerance of the drug. 42% of the patients in the PALACE trial with the use of IBRAS had to discontinue the drug prior to finishing the therapeutic um, uh, treatment, whereas in a bevacyclib, that number was 16%. And so um, the fact that the abemocyclib was a more tolerable uh, treatment and treated a higher risk patient population likely was the reason why abemocyclib and uh, at, with the trade name of Herzenio uh, achieved significance and improvement in that patient population. And the point here really from an emphasis perspective is there are patients in the early breast cancer space that actually needs better treatment. And the Monarchy trial has identified that patient population that not only does worse without additional therapy, but also who will benefit from a bemocyclib or from Fresenio in that, in, in that patient population. So really important information. And again, um, uh, literally uh, something that hasn't happened in that patient population for the past 15 to 20 years. Great. Uh, what else sort of caught your, caught your eye in the research? Well, moving right on to um, really metastatic breast cancer, I think that the next really most important uh, presentation and data that was released at ESMO was a late-breaking abstract number 18. This was the final overall survival analysis from the trial we call the SOLAR-1 trial. In this trial, we actually were looking at specific PIK3CA mutated breast cancers, which are present in 40 to 45% of the breast cancers that actually exist today. And this is a drug that has previously been FDA approved and approved both in the United States and in Europe for its improvement in progression-free survival, meaning that it delayed the onset of recurrence in the metastatic space already. This was a follow-on for the overall survival benefit in that patient population. Uh, this drug uh, is called apelacib and is a specific biomarker-driven 
treatment that specifically looks or treats patients that have this specific genomic mutation called the PIK3CA mutation, PIK3CA mutation. And the, again, the benefit of this drug has been demonstrated um, in the uh, progression-free survival side, which was presented previous, previous to this, and demonstrated an 11-month improvement of, of disease-free uh, interval as opposed to 5.7 months um, in patients with this particular mutation. Unfortunately, the overall survival did not reach statistical significance. However, it, there was a trend towards an improvement in overall survival, and there were patients that had the worst kind of disease, such as lung or liver, that did demonstrate an improvement in overall survival. This trial did not include patients that had received a prior CDK4 and 6 inhibitor, which is the type of drug we just spoke about that has been moved up into the early setting. And despite its toxicity, we still believe that apelicid or these directed PIK3CA mutation um, type drugs are going to have a role in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, but likely after the use of the CDK4-6 inhibitors in the same space. There are some toxicities, especially hyperglycemia associated with the drug, but overall it was able to be tolerated. And despite the fact that it did not reach a significance in overall survival, it trended in that way, and there was a clear progression for survival. So it, it still fits um, into a worthwhile discussion in treatment of patients with metastatic breast cancer. Sure, definitely, definitely encouraging results. As you said, not necessarily statistically significant in overall survival, but I think if I had been diagnosed with metastatic disease that had that particular type of genetic mutation, I would be encouraged by those results. Thank you, and, and I, I do agree. And certainly something that uh, everyone with that mutation should now be in the metastatic setting considered for its, for its use. Moving on to another one of the late-breaking abstracts, uh, and this was the late-breaking abstract number 19, um, was a European trial that was sponsored by GICAM, one of the large Spanish cooperative groups, and this was called the FLIPPER study. This particular study looked at two different groups of patients that had endocrine-sensitive breast cancer, one that were stage four um, in the in the first-line treatment, and another group that were those patients that actually occurred after five years of an endocrine therapy use in the metastatic setting. And in this trial, they were able to actually demonstrate a significant progression-free survival that was particularly important in those patients that had de novo metastatic breast cancer, meaning that they had stage four breast cancer at the time of diagnosis. So all those patients had not seen any endocrine therapy and those patients actually um, derived a significant benefit with a, an overall response rate of 68.3% versus 42.2% uh, in that patient population. And while this was only a phase two clinical trial, it added to the body of evidence confirming the uh, benefit of the use of this class of drugs that we talked about at the beginning, which are the CDK4 and 6 inhibitors in those patients with hormone receptor positive HER2-negative breast cancer. I just want to clarify, um, at, when you started talking about the study, you said it was endocrine-sensitive. Does that mean hormone receptor-positive breast cancer? I just, just want to make sure that's clear for everybody. No, that's a great question, and thank you for asking. 
So when we talk about hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, we are talking about a patient population that has the potential or will respond to endocrine therapy of some sort. The reason we use the terms endocrine sensitive versus endocrine resistance is that there are patients who have seen endocrine therapy previously to their treatment, whether that be in the early setting or in the metastatic setting, that the developed disease at the time of treatment of that endocrine therapy or um, shortly thereafter. And in that patient population, we define them as endocrine resistant because they've seen endocrine therapy and then they've recurred shortly after that. We're talking about that same class of group of patients, which are HR positive or hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, but that have not seen any endocrine therapy. And so by their very nature, they are most of them endocrine sensitive, whereas as an example, there are specific treatments for those patients that have proven to be endocrine resistant. Um, and when we talk about endocrine therapy, we are talking about those oral medications such as tamoxifen, letrozole, anastrozole. So basically the aromatase inhibitors and the other selective estrogen receptor modifiers that we use in that space. So in the FLIPPER study, the, the group of people that participated, they had metastatic disease that had not received any uh, anti-estrogen or, as we call it, hormonal therapy yet. So this was looking to see whether these CDK4-6 inhibitors could be a good first treatment for metastatic disease. That's correct. And they included another patient population that actually were late recurrences. So these are patients that actually had early breast cancer, were treated with their five years of endocrine therapy, as you've described, mm -hmm. and then several years after that, so they did not meet the criteria of endocrine resistance because they didn't recur on or shortly after. So they were a distant reason after. And so that patient population was still endocrine sensitive because they didn't occur while on or shortly after the therapy. And so those two populations were looked at. And in the FLIPPER study, the population that benefited most was the advanced early. So those patients that were diagnosed with stage four endocrine or hormone receptor positive breast cancer that had metastasized and had never been treated with any endocrine therapy. Oh, okay. Very good to know then. Very good to know. Okay. Was there any other studies that you thought were particularly interesting? Yes, yes, there were several. Um, and I think we can probably um, move to uh, the triple negative patient population. Uh, again, another very difficult to treat population. So these are breast cancer patients and breast cancers that do not have any estrogen or progesterone or HER2 new expression. So we call them triple negative breast cancers. And by their very nature, they tend to be the most aggressive types of breast cancers that we treat. This patient population is being studied, was studied in uh, several trials, actually, um, that were looked at at the ESMO Congress. Um, and one was called the Impassion 131 trial, and the other um, was an uh, additional Impassion trial that was the O31 trial. And both of these trials actually deserve a lots of attention primarily because this is the patient population um, in breast cancer that seems to benefit the most from immunotherapy. 
And so both of these trials actually looked at the use of immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy, looking at the potential benefit. One of the immunotherapy treatments, etazolamide, um, which has been studied previously in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, has been shown in combination with chemotherapy to be of significant benefit. The two trials that actually looked at this Congress were in the what we would call neoadjuvant setting, meaning upfront at the beginning once diagnosed, and this would be prior to surgery. And the interesting thing that was uh, looked at in this trial was there are two combinations that were looked at using the same base drug, but in different formulations. And that would be Taxol or Paclitaxol. And this other type of taxane that we called NAB Paclitaxol, which is just simply the same drug, but it's actually placed into a liposome so that the side effects and toxicities and hypersensitivity problems around it are reduced. It's a more expensive drug, but it actually has some benefit. And both were studied actually in this space. What's very interesting is the taxol, which was not in the liposome, so the, the regular taxol, which is today the less expensive, perhaps more available taxol, did not benefit it with the addition of acetolumab um, in the neoadjuvant setting in treatment. However, the NAB-Paclitaxel did, and that was the impassioned 031 trial presented by Nadia Harbach um, at, at the Congress. And in that trial, they actually looked at stage two and three um, triple negative breast cancers uh, that received neoadjuvant chemotherapy in combination with this immunotherapy. And in that, in that patient population, the pathological complete response rate, and just to explain that, when you give treatment, the goal would be to eliminate the cancer. That doesn't always happen, and oftentimes you have to perform surgery to remove the remaining cancer after you give it before surgery. It, the measure of success and outcome of triple negative breast cancer is correlated very strongly to the ability to reach that pathological complete response rate, that is, no tumor left after chemotherapy. The pathological complete response rate was increased from 40% to nearly 60% in the patient population that received the immunotherapy. And in the patients that actually had the immunotherapy marker, which many of you might have heard, which is called the PDL1 positive patients, which is a measure of um, a, an immune marker that, dem that suggests response to these immune drugs, that difference was 70% versus 50%. And so um, and, and that portends an, an excellent outcome in this patient population. So this, in fact, was a hugely important presentation and set of data that was presented, uh, basically suggesting that the addition of an immunotherapy in the pdl one positive patient population had a very significant improvement in the pathological complete response rate, and the expectation would be in the overall benefit and survival of that patient population. Thanks for bringing that up. I do have a question. Because of the difference in the results, um, it seems to me, now I am not a researcher, but there was a difference in the type of chemotherapy that the immunotherapy, and I'll just say the brand name is Tecentric because I think um, a lot of our audience may know it that way. 
And in, in one case, it was combined with Taxol. And in one case, it was combined with the Braxane. And when it was combined with the Braxane, it, the results were much more positive than when it was combined with Taxol. So to me, that's very interesting. And I'm not sure if you want to talk about it. I know it generated a lot of discussion at the conference, people trying to figure out why, you know, was it just the difference in chemotherapy? Was there a slight difference maybe in the people that participated? Um you know, so I'm sure that's going to generate a lot of discussion. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on those, the differences in the outcomes. No, I think that's a really great question. As you know, these, you know, as a it, comparable trial side by side is really un unfortunately not possible. And I think all of the potential explanations that you gave are possible, you know, patient population, um, differences in risk factor, adherence to drug, um, Etc. One of the things that is oftentimes uh, required with the use of Taxol, that particular brand product, is, is that we routinely give steroids uh, to that patient population to minimize the risk of hypersensitivity because that can develop in a number of patients. And so it's a routine treatment. And the question that arose in addition to the ones you mentioned is by giving steroids, are you inhibiting, preventing, somehow influencing the impact that an immunotherapy would have on the treatment at that time? And so I think that's, in addition to the ones you mentioned, one of the ones that's currently being thought of and, and perhaps is being considered. But it is a question, and I, I can honestly say that I don't have the, the answer, but I think there are several potential answers. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for helping us understand that. Were, were there other studies that you thought were particularly notable? Well, I, I do have, you know, one more that I think really was something of importance for everyone there listening. And that was really the, the mini oral presentation uh, 167. And it was entitled Longitudinal Evaluation of Serum Assessed Non-Adherence to Tamoxifen among premenopausal patients in the prospective multicentered CANTO cohort. And so why this is a long title and so important, and this was presented by um, Dr. Pastali from France, but this is critical um, in that the adherence to endocrine therapy for the length of time that women have to endure, the side effects is hugely important. And when we talk about risk-benefit, we have to understand that when we even look at the benefit associated with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, and endocrine therapy, it may be that one of the most important parts of an individual's treatment in this patient population, and again, the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative population, is that endocrine therapy. And when we looked at this trial, and this was a follow-up on the initial trial that looked at one-year following treatment initiation, at that point, one in six women had discontinued their endocrine therapy or were not adherent. At this point, at the three-year mark, 38.5% of patients actually were non-adherent. Um, and there were many reasons why they were not adherent. But when we look at the, the publication, actually, that was available um, at the time, it was really the lead author was Ann Partridge, and we looked at what that meant for disease-free survival in that patient population. If at three years you were non-adherent, your risk of having recurrent disease was increased by a factor of 2.3 or a multiple of 2.3 over 
those who actually were continued or had continued the therapy. And while we all understand there are lots of reasons for discontinuation, it's miserable. You have bone aches and muscle aches. You have hot flashes, and there's lots of reasons why. I think what this tells us and why this is so important is because this tells us that we, those of us taking care of patients, need to do a better job for two two things. One is communicating the benefit that's associated with this treatment and then helping the patient, you, through that, that treatment so that you can gain that benefit that is, in fact, significant uh, for you and for your outcome. And so I, I just found this to be tremendously important, something that we need to focus on and really focus on our efforts on having patients tolerate their endocrine therapy moving forward. How can we help that? And fortunately, in today's day, we have several alternatives to that as far as types of medications we can offer. Some have different side effect profiles than others, but also emphasizing the benefit that can occur so that patients actually have the motivation and incentive to endure what is is sometimes um, a very uncomfortable and difficult time. Yes, thank you for that. And the what I would add is we do get on our site many, many comments, people talking about the side effects of hormonal therapy, whether it's tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor, you know, hot flashes, joint pain, all those kinds of things. And the and, and I know it's as you said, it it, it can be miserable. Um, I guess I would add that I would strongly urge anyone who's having those side effects to talk to their doctor because there are treatments available to help ease some of those side effects. I don't know that they can ever be, you know, ever go away completely, but I do know there are things that can make them much less painful. And so I, I strongly agree with you. I'm glad you brought that up. No, and I absolutely agree with you is that there are things that can be done and um, you should bring those to the attention of your physician rather than stopping the medication it's in your best interest to continue, but to find a way to either tolerate it or find an alternative medication um, that would do the same thing. And there are several alternatives that we can turn to. So in in both cases, I think you and I are aligned that that this is um, critical for our patients um, and hugely important to encourage our patients to talk to us about those symptoms that sometimes they don't feel are important, but we now know how important they are. Absolutely. Dr. Method, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. Um, Even though ESMO is virtual, I kind of feel like I was there now. So I really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, You can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.